this podcast, Strange, Rare, and Peculiar, is for kind of those in the know about homeopathy, deepening your knowledge, bringing you more information about what you need to know, and maybe what you can leave aside about homeopathy. Homeo what? Homeo what? those of you who don't know, Alistair and I, we run a homeopathy school, the Academy of Homeopathy Education. We have a foundation that supports all things homeopathy, but um, in particular research. And so what this means is that we live and breathe this. We, you know, we are researching, we are teaching, we are learning every day. And and I think the biggest thing for us in terms of um, why this felt important to do is that we see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases um, in our teaching clinic through our helpline, Homeopathy Help Now, and through our own practices. And what that means is we we have a sense of what is working. We also see what happens when, you know, people go pretty far off script yeah. using homeopathic medicine and, and the fact that there are actual consequences to it. And so, so this podcast, Stranger and Peculiar, is a way for us to um, both deepen our knowledge, um, have fun with some history, some trivia, um, some you know, some fun facts about homeopathy. I want factoids. Yeah, lots of factoids. Um, but also to really, you know, deepen knowledge by asking difficult questions, by challenging paradigms, by um, you know, by not saying there's only one way to do something, but to engage in a critical thinking practice that that requires us to ask some questions about what we do and how we do it. I was thinking um, about what you were telling me just before, because you listened to a podcast today, right? Yeah, I did. I started my day day with a podcast. Yeah, (laughs) I'd rather have (laughs) breakfast myself, but anyway. Um, uh, I'm fascinated by that because that's kind of informal learning. You know, you're using it Mm -hmm. not for just entertainment it's a bit of edutainment, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure if I like that term. But you're using it because you want to learn some stuff. And you yeah, walk to- the door. Yeah, totally. So, you know, my morning routine is... Where is the dog? Oh, we'll hear her at some point. Right. Um, background noises of life in this podcast. Mm-hmm. So um, my, my morning routine is, um, is uh, yoga before I even turn on the lights. I have my yoga practice and then I do a sunrise walk with the dog. And I often will listen to music or a podcast. Mm. And um, and the podcast I listened to this morning was um, was one of the Gwyneth Paltrow Goop podcasts, which I love. Who's Gwyneth? What's <laughs> she doing? Uh, she just turned fifty. <laughs> really? Yes. Yeah. Anyway, but she. I I think she's just such a, I, I really appreciate what she's doing because she's she's really willing to push some boundaries, to ask some questions or to engage in topics that are uncomfortable to talk about. And anyway, so the topic that, or the podcast that I listened to today, she was talking with, um, I actually don't know what, I think this woman is a, func- a doctor of functional medicine, um, but she was talking about menopause. And what was really interesting about the podcast for, for me was how the conversation about sort of female reproductive health 
is so incredibly biomedical. I mean, there there are plenty of people who, you know, in our in our line of work who will talk about sort of the more, you know, how women move through the cycles of, of life, the maiden, mother, and crone cycle, and so on and so forth. But but when you get into any of the hormonal challenges, it goes directly into this reductionistic biomedical paradigm. Yeah, there's not a lot of mystery in that conversation, is there? No, and it was amazing, and it was you know I I definitely learned things. I, I you know I, I'm often listening to things to expand the knowledge base I have and also to challenge what my belief system is to make sure that I'm, you know, looking, peeking into the corners, you know, to really understand things. But this, but listening to this podcast, it was really interesting, especially because of the topic we are talking about today, which is um, about the, this idea of the characteristic symptom in homeopathy or even the strange, rare and peculiar symptom that is what guides a homeopath to make a clinical decision. And how when you get into this, um, you know, sort of this realm of bioidentical hormones, it's it's very different. It's very much about, you know, even though it's considered individualization because they're using a biomedic, a bioidentical product, it's still about meeting a standard. There's still this idea that health is about when you can tick the boxes that you're in the range. So whether it's a blood test, whether it's a urinalysis, whether it's, you know, a hair analysis, what they're looking for is a range of expectation so that you can sort of fix that, you know, so that you can bring someone into range by filling in a gap. But I think one of the things I wanted to talk with you about today was how that's, while that would be the ultimate goal in homeopathy, we wouldn't be we wouldn't be starting there and thinking about how to fill in one particular gap, right? Mm. So like for just for example, if we're talking about this idea of the female hormonal system, I mean, so many of my clients, so many of your clients, so many clients that come to homeopathy are women in, you know, from their childbearing years on up through, you know, that that transition in the hormonal cycle mm. and and the challenges that are faced that that people face there. And you know, we homeopaths look at the whole picture, mental, emotional, and physical. But if someone, and, and this is the challenge point that I want to talk about, is if someone is both using the the sort of biomedical model of fill in the gaps, you know, if you are high in estrogen, then you want to either, you know, I'm oversimplifying this, but elevate progesterone or lower the estrogen in some way. It, it What happens to the way that we view that as homeopaths if we're interacting with someone who's on both sides of that equation well, in that system. I mean, we just, you've taken us right to the kind of practicalities of what we do because so much, because obviously what we're doing is using similar to push against a disordered vital force to reestablish balance. That would be the model that we're using. That's it. And so practically, how does that work? That's what you're asking? Yeah. How, how on earth can we uh, have both working at the same time? I mean, the only way I could respond to that at this stage would be that in my experience... So I've been, you know, doing this since the Bush administration, <laughs> the first Bush administration, yeah. <laughs> um, and that would be that the vital force is somewhat forgiving, and um, and that sort of pithy yet inadequate answer kind of describes my approach, and that is, I don't know, I have no idea, I don't think there's any, well, there's no research I can tell you that right now, of how, of the outcomes of an integrative approach when one side see an integrative approach kind of makes a bit of sense when everyone's coming from the same side right so an integrative approach where you've got chinese medicine 
and homeopathy might make a bit of sense because at the end of the day they they're they're using vital force as part of their um, as part of their analytics. But when you've got biomedical or naturopathic or reductionistic or redu- yeah good or or straight up reductionistic thinking applied to that then. Where, where does the homeopath or where does the, the Chinese medicine or where's the shaman, you know, that, that might be working yeah. also with that client? It's, it's funny, right? Because it's more confusing than I think we would, than I think we yeah. would expect. Yeah, I don't know that it, <laughs> we've gone to a really interesting place because I, <laughs> I don't think anyone wants to get into that because in integrative medicine, I spend lots of time in the integrative medicine world. Yeah. And no one, absolutely no one is thinking about that. Integrative medicine, for the most part, I'm going to say something outrageous, but for the most part, it seems to be um, more reductionistic or biomedical physicians realizing the the paucity of options they've got and looking to the complementary world and identifying what they can use without going so far outside of their scope and and actually needing to really adjust their... um, paradigm of working okay so can i ask so if if we were going to make a visual of that then it would be that orthodox or allopathic medicine sort of the 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 model that you know most of the world agrees on would be at the center of this and every other therapeutic intervention would be peripheral uh yeah that's interesting i've got a different visual i've got a big balloon Uh and then a whole lot of little balloons around the big balloon I like that. That's it's pretty like good. Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> and then, and yeah, and uh, it's um, it's almost, I mean, I'd be fascinated to learn from people that have identified this kind of working challenge that we have and, and see how they reconcile it with themselves. And again, I say any research um, around that. I can immediately start to think of some interesting research questions, but how would we go about answering them? Yeah. Now, I can already say that if people are going to be posting comments and things, there are going to be a lot of homeopaths who say, well, I just use endocrine SAR codes, or I do this, or yeah, I do that. Yeah, right. and, and, and so it's, yeah. it's really, it's an interesting conversation to have about how, and, and, and again, we said, you know, this, these conversations are about getting us to our edges to ask questions about what we do as homeopaths and how do we really reconcile this. So, you know, I brought up how do we reconcile it in the external environment. So, mm. you know, this was just based on having listened to this podcast this morning that brought the question to my mind. Mm. But at the end of the day, we face it internally as well with using multiple homeopathic remedies to theoretically address the same challenge of, you know, rebalancing the endocrine system. But at the end of the day, and I think this is this is how I want to kind of bring us back to what the, you know, what um, our topic is around this idea of the characteristic or strange, rare, and peculiar symptom in homeopathy, because there's a certain point where if the homeopath's job, right, if, if Hahnemann sets us forward and says the, that the most important thing is the totality of symptoms that you perceive, you've got to recognize what the appropriate totality is that needs to be treated. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we use a small totality. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we use a global totality. Mm-hmm. If wh- How is it affected if another modality or if a homeopath is both treating a small totality and a large totality at the same time well that's where i think you know that's where things unravel and again there's not so i mean there's a bit of a judgment around it but the system of homeopathy as i understand it it, well it is a whole system of medicine and that whole system of medicine requires all parts of the theory and philosophy to be in operation 
as soon as you start shaving off parts of the the whole healing system, then I think compromise happens along the way. That's and, just it. And so, you know, going back to what you said, for me, I mean, Hahnemann never says totality of symptoms. He says totality of characteristic symptoms. That's correct. And so totality of characteristic symptoms. And then the next part is really critical. Ken Duran taught me this. I mean, you know, I could have read the Organon and, <laughs> and understood it more clearly, but he said, no, no, Al. Um, Ken is a homeopath in Sydney. I th- plays guitar. I don't know. I think he might be playing more guitar than homeopathy. But anyway, hi, Ken. Um... But he said, no, 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 it's the totality of characteristic symptoms from when the patient was last healthy. That's right. And, and I mean, so- Hahnemann says that in aphorism six. You know, aphorism, aphorism six in the organon, mm. uh, sorry to go off track, but and, and also for those who might be kind of new to the game, the organon of medicine is Hahnemann's philosophy book. It's the core philosophy philosophy book that's like our how-to manual for everything. And it's written in what we call an aphoristic style. So it's numbered paragraphs, each of which has sort of a, a pithy comment to be made. And then in this style, it's it's quite common to have footnotes that sort of spell that give sort of the background information. So anyway, the, what what Can else? I just call you on something. Yeah, a pithy style. <laughs> Are you kidding? It's a rant. It's well, a, Hahnemann. I'm talking about punctuation. What, what the aphoristic style is in general. We'll Hahnemann's use of it in particular. Anyway, but get to your point. So, so um, what you're talking about, I think, is a really important point because aphorism six in the Organon of Medicine is where Hahnemann talks about being the unbiased or unprejudiced or objective observer. Mm. But the part that people that gets lost, because I think aphorism six often gets interpreted in a contemporary term, which is don't judge people, you know, don't make assumptions about people, mm. you know, be unprejudiced in a, in, in a very 21st century way. But in reality, this idea that Ken, you know, uh, hammered home to you is about what a homeopath is looking at is the point from which the person was last well. And Hahnemann begins that as early in the organon as the sixth paragraph, mm. you know? And at the end of the day, that translates practically into our work as, well, that's the beginning of the totality of symptoms. Exactly. Well, aphorism seven is the totality aphorism. Let's right. have a look. Happen to have a couple of organons right in front of us. Um, and just for reference purposes, we, um, in our teaching, we mostly work from... Um, Wenda O'Reilly's um, sixth edition of the Organon, and um, and we then have other editions of the Organon from which we will draw references to show the differences between, and obviously go through the different editions of the Organon. But you know, um, Hahnemann says in Aphorism Seven, in cases of disease of disease where there is no obvious occasioning or maintaining cause to be removed, in other words. If you've got a splinter in your foot, take the splinter out. You know, if you live in a damp basement, get out of the basement. Um, We can perceive nothing but the disease signs. Therefore, it must be the symptoms alone by which the disease demands and can point to the appropriate medicine for its relief, along with regard for any contingent miasm and with attention to the attendant circumstances. In other words, that totality of symptoms, that full picture, is what guides the homeopath. And it's not just symptoms, but it's the characteristic symptoms. Do you know what I think? I think, in my own understanding of of uh, homeopathy and the differences between practitioners, is essentially that paragraph. Totally. You know, I don't think there's a homeopath. Well, there might be one or two around somewhere, but we all agree on similars. Well, we should. It's the first principle from right. which homeopathy. Works. Most of us agree on single remedy. 
Oh, I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't agree with that. Not anymore. Well, yeah. I mean, over the counter, um, uh, you know, a non-combo remedies. You're yeah. talking about. Yeah, but single remedy. Um, most of us have a working understanding of less is better. You know, give enough so that the vital force pushes back. The idea of a minimum dose. Most of us are okay with using remedies and potency, say whatever Avogadro's number is, above 12C, whatever it is, yeah. 13. Um, but totality, I don't think he defined... Well, actually, I, nowadays, doing this for 30-something years and teaching for a whole bunch of years, I used to teach that this was the poorest defined principle of homeopathy. I would disagree. But I, I, I think I had, I've wound myself back a little bit because I think it's actually quite clear. Yeah, it is. And especially, mm. I think once... Okay, I'm, I'm going to say something that I'm not entirely sure of, but I would venture a guess that Hahnemann got clearer on this after his understanding of chronic diseases. Because if you think right. about it, right? Oh, okay. So if you think about this, when... Hahnemann, before um, Hahnemann began his re-evaluation um, of homeopathy as early as 1816. So he spent from 1816 to 1828 trying to figure out why he was only partially successful. In other words... 45, 55, so 60 years old. 61 years old. Wow. And he was... So, you know, he has this system of medicine... And he says, yeah, I figured it out. I figured out how to remove the cause of disease, which results in a capital C cure. Mm -hmm. And then he says, well, actually, that's not entirely true. I take that back because he was seeing cases relapse. And then he, you know, subsequently um, comes back with a revised um, uh, approach to the practice of homeopathy. And it's gotten lost on a lot of people. Anyway, the reason that I bring this up is because if prior to that point... Mm -hmm. It, Hahnemann treated everything as if equal, and I think many homeopaths do that as well because it's all people talk about this idea of the similimum. You need this one match, this perfect remedy, mm -hmm. and I think the similimum only holds water if you only think of Hahnemann's initial four principles. So in the beginning, you know Hahnemann based everything on you give one remedy at a time for the largest totality of symptoms that you could perceive. You prescribe according to the law of similars, and you give it in the minimum dose needed in order to excite a cure. But once you add the idea of a deeper chronic disease into that equation, it just doesn't, it, it's not as simple as that. Mm. And what that requires then is a systematic um, uh, approach to the unraveling of chronic disease. And, and so, and this brings us back to the very beginning what, that we started talking about is this tension now. If, if people are working to modulate these, these reductionistic biomedical um, uh, aspects of a person's case. So the thyroid is underperforming, therefore I give thyroid item, mm. along with whatever the quote-unquote constitutional remedy is. Now we all know how I feel about the term constitutional remedy, which is really the remedy, the chronic remedy for the largest totality of symptoms. It's yeah, a different definition, but remedy. we'll call it the chronic remedy. Yeah. So, so once you do that, are, you know, you're interfering with the presenting totality, because you're removing what Hahnemann says is the most characteristic symptom, which is the stranger and peculiar, the striking symptom. So as soon as you start to modulate the case outside of the largest totality, you start putting these little bits of you know homeopathy in or a bioidentical in, then what happens? 
do you still have accessibility to see the largest totality of symptoms? I, I mean, I'm not saying right or wrong. I no, think it's just I, a question no, to I, ask. But my, my approach is, is always, has always been this. Actually, it's that reason why I wrote the method book. And it, and it is that I, I would say probably when I started homeopathy, maybe 80% of my case was kind of straightforward in the sense that somebody's got a problem. Yeah. There's a totality of symptoms. I begin prescribing and off we go. Yeah. Same I here. I manage the case. Yeah. I would say now that that's kind of 60%, uh, maybe even 50%. Yeah. That might just be because the people that are drawn to us are... Uh, Iller, mm-hmm. sicker, yeah. you know, more, uh, more sick. You know, but hang on, let me finish my okay. point because I'm going to lose it. Or have I lost it already? No, no. It's short-term memory loss. Uh-oh. No, so um, uh, it's all that misspent youth. But the, <laughs> the point that I'm making is that suddenly with those cases, I with all cases, I always start with homeopathy, mm-hmm. right? But then you do meet the case every now and again. Totally. Where, you know, the, the remedy doesn't, um, the, the indicated remedy doesn't work. And, and traditionally, you know, that's when, well, even, even you know, very conservative homeopaths would say, well, that's when you might start thinking about, you know, a, 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 a different way of going about it. And that's where I, I personally, in my own practice, started to look at, to, de- to deal with those difficult situations. Um, Schussler mm-hmm. or James Compton Burnett, mm-hmm. organopathy. You know, different adjacent styles of homeopathy both advocated that they were, you know, homeopaths, although that's somewhat controversial um and and then start to look at those sorts of applications so i always started first with homeopathy straight up normal mm-hmm. no sure. no missing homeopathy and then started to look at some of the adjuncts and, and different and different styles um i just had to laugh because when you mentioned the method book uh, so when i think we should tell the story of how when when you, you missed your bus stop <laughs> No, not that one. Oh, he was so when, angry. When we first, no, yeah. When we first met, you were writing the method book. And oh, you were, um, we met at a conference and um, some years ago, and you were asking people, you know, to talk about their practice or whatever. And at the time, um, my practice was... Um, was very very integrative in that I had I had moved from practicing in a city where people were much more holistically minded where homeopathy was very much on the table mm. and and there was a lot of compliance and I and I moved back to Philadelphia this was in 2006 mm-hmm. and I was flooded with clients that really needed help. And at this time, this was sort of the the beginning of when I was seeing a lot of um, people on the spectrum, a lot of kids on the spectrum. And it was, um, and and these moms were really concerned because their kids had clearly developed, you know, food sensitivities, they had allergies, they were, you know, diets were being suggested to them, they weren't sure how they could, you know, carry out anyway. So I had Uh, I had gone to culinary school to learn how to help this population. You know, what do you do? How many black bean burgers is a two-year-old going to eat? I mean, you know, learning how to deal with, you know, (laughs) allergy-safe and, you know, um, allergy-safe cuisine or, you know, this food is medicine concept was really important to me. Anyway, so when you were asking me about my practice and I was, I could see it in your face that you thought I was... 
you were a little bit appalled. Uh, you, no, you're not right about that. <laughs> no? <laughs> no, because I've heard you tell this story. Yeah. And, and, and while I've never, I, I, you know, I know a bit about nutrition, but it's all from eating. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I also had adopted much more of an integrative approach. And I know that, uh, I think you totally misread my Do reaction. Yeah, totally. Because, I don't know. I don't no, know. because I know that I was, you know, definitely heading in an integrative approach for these kind of, di- exactly what you're talking about, these difficult clients. So, I don't know, maybe I smelled a fart or <laughs> something. Maybe, must have been. Maybe, maybe I don't know. Maybe, maybe I, you did it. Um, but, it but anyway, go, <laughs> what I was really happy about was subsequent to that, realizing how much emphasis Hahnemann put on diet and regimen, you know, in other words, right livelihood. How do we, how do we live well for our body, both in how we, um, you know, put food in our body? How do we engage in our day-to-day life, our relationships? How do we move our body? Do we get fresh air? And, you know, without, I, I, I hadn't really gotten to the point in my practice where I thought about homeopathy through that lens. In fact, I don't, I wasn't taught that. I don't think that ever came no. up as a part of my, no. you know, homeopathy learning. But, you know, down the road when dealing with really difficult cases and and just pouring through the organon, you know, over and over again to try to figure out the answers to the problems, I realized that that, you know, that that approach wasn't too far off. And I wonder if, you know, because with homeopathy, the, the pill is the, you know, is the, um, that's the arrangement. We, you know, people have their case, you know, taken or received, and then the homeopath analyzes the case, and then there's a remedy that is, you know, given. Mm. And that's supposed to be the, you know, the catalyst for healing. Um, but there's a part of it where the emphasis on the pill is really... It's overdone. It's overdone. It's totally overdone, and it was never like that from the start. I mean, it wasn't like... And again, I kind of had to unlearn that as I've gone through my my, uh, practice. Yeah. But... The, uh, you know, it, 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 well, I mean, statistically, 15% of that book is about diet and regimen yeah. and the removal of obstacles to cure. Yeah. The organon. And, I mean, the, he just, he, Hahnemann, from the very beginning, couldn't have asserted it more, even in those letters to his clients, you yeah. know, in the Francis Troyhurt's book. I love that. Genius of Homeopathy. If you, you know, are a homeopathy fan and you love the, you know, the sort of intimacy of, of reading letters and how, you know, one-to-one communication happens, uh, Francis Troyhurt's, who is um, an English homeopath, had put together just the most wonderful book. And um, I highly recommend it. I mean, it, they're not intimate letters. They're, they're rants. They're furious. Well, I mean, intimacy yeah. <laughs> meaning one-on-one communication. Yeah. But, um, you know, Hahnemann was, was vehement that, with his clients about right living, good living, mm. removal of obstacles, and remedies. And, and why that's important is because it removes all the things that that lead a case in one direction or another. Mm. So if somebody who, you know, has a gluten intolerance or shouldn't have much dairy, you know, comes to you with GI distress, Mm. well, without removing the obstacles in the beginning to, you know, you're going to weight your prescription on a symptom that is an indisposition. It's not part of the dynamic disease. It's an effect of, you know... 
of, of a person's lifestyle. Now, of course, one could argue, well, that's susceptibility. But I think that there is a, um, there's a point at which Hahnemann is really clear, take responsibility for the way that you treat this body, take responsibility for how you're living in it, and then you'll be able to see a much clearer picture mm-hmm. as to what's influencing. This is where, um, gosh, we could do an entire podcast on um, all the things that homeopaths think you're not allowed to have. Like, Oh, we'll do that. Yeah, we'll definitely do one. But the fixation on mint and coffee, you know, people think that you sign up for homeopathy and you can never brush your teeth again. Mm. Um, but that, that comes from, it's been misinterpreted over the years. It's just Hahnemann saying there are so many substances in your day-to-day life that actually can impact the way that your body tries to achieve equilibrium. Yeah. And so if you remove them, you're going to get a clearer picture of the chronicity, you know, and how it presents itself. Now, I've been living with you for a number of years, and I know <laughs> that you have seven conversations at once, and are quite happy with that. But I want you to go back. I want you to tell the story about missing your bus stop. Because remember we were talking about the method book, right? Yeah. Was I it think this is relevant. I don't think it was the method book, was it? Yeah, it was the one where I said education's a mess. Oh, yeah. That was it, right? Yeah, I think that's... I So so <laughs> to back up and to tell the story, so I was at a... I was teaching for um, a homeopathy school um, back... This was back in... This might have been 2010 or 11... And I was given a stack of Alistair's books um, that we were using as, you know, as textbooks. And I hadn't, hadn't read them. I'd met you, um, but I hadn't read the books. Mm. Um, right, because we met before when you were still researching for method. Anyway, so I'm on the bus and I'm reading this book and I pulled out my red pen and I start, oh my gosh, I can't even believe it. Because part of what part of what you were writing about was just that, you know, homeopathy education was really in the toilet. And I think I took it quite personally that no, actually, you know, those there are those of us who are really working to to teach good homeopathy. <laughs> there are a lot of good people teaching good homeopathy. But you ended up in the East River or something. But I missed my butt. So I was living in New York City <laughs> and I was no, I was I went the other way. So I was coming from um, a meeting on the far the east side. Oh, okay. And I got on the bus to take me to my subway stop at 6th Avenue, and I wound up all the way when the bus stopped on the other side. I was so mad marking up your Looking book. Looking at the Hudson. Nice. But you made some edits for the next edition that uh, yeah, I was quite grateful I, for. I made a truckload of them. I'll tell you a story about Francis Troyhurt because I, I went to London. It must have been about six months after that book was published, and, um, and Francis and I were in you know, contact and I used to go over to his place and he would feed me um, and we would have these amazing lunches, mainly consisting of bagels. Um, and uh, and he's got this incredible collection of books and stuff. So we spent a bit of time and he said, look, uh, in an email he wrote, Alistair, um, would you like some comments on your last book? And I said, of course, Francis. And he said, we'll need some time. <laughs> and, and I went, okay. Uh, and then with some trepidation, uh, I went up the stairs. I got to his house, went up the stairs. He said, do you want to talk about the book or do you want to have lunch first? And I looked <laughs> and uh, in his office on his desk was this porcupine. <gasps> and it was my book with post-it notes. Oh, dear. A bit like your Like organon, my organon, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, oh, here we go. But look, um, and to his credit, he sent me straight on a couple of things. And he also helped me out with some spelling <laughs> of um, actually mainly of luminaries because you know 
Uh, no, I can't remember. Is Swan two ends or one end? Swan is two ends. Right. So He's you know, my current fascination, Samuel Swan. Yeah, Samuel Swan. So, you know, it was stuff like that at the end of the day and a couple of other doozies. And what, what's that thing that my father hates about my grandma? My <laughs> use of... Oh, I can't remember. It's my peculiar sentence structure. It, yes, and I can vouch for that. Um, <laughs> Anywho. Speaking of peculiarities. Yeah, moving so, on. All right. So, but so if we, come, if we come back to this, which is this idea that the homeopathic case is solved according to Hahnemann and, 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 you know, I spend a lot of my research time, which, you know, we'll talk about this in some subsequent po- um, podcasts, but right now I'm, I'm doing a deep, deep, deep dive into homeopathy in America from 1850 to 1920 with a very, um, with an even deeper dive into 1860 to 1880. And, in reading the primary source materials and the letters between these homeopaths and also looking at the um, the structure of homeopathy education in its heyday, you know, when there were medical colleges of homeopathy and hospitals here in the United States, the one thing that stands out to me more than anything else, hands down, is the weight that these homeopaths put on the strange, rare, and peculiar symptom. In fact, they solved these cases primarily based on the most characteristic symptom in the case. All right, got to stop there because now you're using four terms. Mm-hmm. You're talking about strange, rare, peculiar. Mm-hmm. So 153. Yeah. But you're also in the same breath, same characteristic. Yeah. So we just had a conversation about this in with our full-time year one class where we were, um, you know, they're learning terminology. We're kind of coming to common language. And, and so um, it was really funny to say, okay, well, so that you've got this, you've got a characteristic symptom, and then you've got a stranger and peculiar symptom. What's the difference between them? There's a big difference. Well, I mean, there there is, but the stranger and peculiar is sort of like the the characteristic symptom to the third power. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. No, I'd be happy with that. Yeah. But for me, you know, the other day here, I was supervising a case in our clinic, and the person, the client said, "I feel good." In a storm, mm. and the homeop- and the the student homeopath moved on. They wrote it down, and I could see they're going, "Oh, characteristic symptom." But then I'm going because I know the rubrics. No, is it before the storm comes? Is it a thunderstorm? Is it the lightning? Is it uh, when the storm arrives? Right. Is it um, a change of weather? Yeah. All right now, because all sometimes of those... the barometric pressure changes, right. and someone gets relief from their symptoms. So for me, you know, if we just go down the line, I mean, we always start, I mean, personally, I'm fine to start with a presenting complaint that a client has, but my job as a homeopath is to modify that complaint, right? Yep. So what are the things that make this individual or characteristic to the person? So when I saw a student, you know, so I had a word to them afterwards and, and, and said gently, you know, actually that was your opportunity. No, I think it's a lack of familiarity with rubrics. Yeah, totally. You know? Because learning the materials helps you to learn how to take the case because right. you have to know what you're looking for and why. So a person that has anxiety, which is the presenting complaint, and then we find out feels better in a storm or before the storm arrives with the change of weather and the change of barometric pressure, now that's a, that's a that's, characteristic yeah. symptom. Would you say that's a strange, rare, peculiar symptom? It depends on the rest of the case. So for me, I've always, and this is going back to my days teaching in New Zealand, 
in a, in Australia so at the beginning because I remember standing up in front of a class and spouting on about something and someone said well what's the difference between the two yeah and I immediately said oh, well for me a strange or peculiar symptom is something I've never heard before no I disagree right and I don't and I, that's not what Hyman is saying here I can in aphorism 153 he says um uh in search for, in the search for a homeopathically specific remedy, that is, in the comparison of the complex of the natural disease signs with the symptom sets of the available medicines, the more striking, exceptional, unusual, and odd characteristic signs and symptoms of the disease case are to be especially and almost solely kept in view. These, above all, must correspond to the very similar ones in the symptom set of the medicine sought if it is to be the most fitting for cure. So then he says, you know, common symptoms like lack of appetite, headache, lassitude, rest of sleep, and so I on and so forth. Feel well. Yeah, that's not really helpful. But here's how I here's how I would see it in a case because yeah, so tell me. It, it's how it relates to the, the larger symptom complex. So I will remind you of a case that we had in the teaching clinic back when we were still doing live when we were still doing in-person clinics. In uh, New York. In New York, and it was Parker's case. And it was a case of a woman who had MS, mm -hmm. and the, the SRP was that she had um, perspiration that stains the linen. Do you remember that? I remember the situation, and that's really interesting, because for me, with my definition, that, that would be characteristic. Except that it was it was the striking symptom that helped us to choose the remedy. Huh. So when we were looking at, say, three, four, or five remedies that covered the constellation of symptoms, mm -hmm. right? You, well, you were teaching the clinic. I was just being a nosy body. But you all, yeah, you, you all were sort of grappling with the mental and emotional part of it. And I said, you have a standout physical symptom. So you cannot, it's so stand out because it was really like, it was a part of her mm. life. It happened all the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I said, you absolutely must consider this as a symptom. And once you, once you plugged that into your analysis, the answer became very clear. Mm. And that case was one of the most rapid turnarounds of a neurological case that I've seen. And so, you know, it's, it'll be interesting. We'll, we'll have another podcast where we talk about the mental and emotional you know, aspect of homeopathy, the aphorism 211 or um, Hahnemann's, you know, the suite of aphorisms from 210 to 230 that are all about the um, mental and emo the treatment of mental and emotional diseases, but in particular, how we utilize that information to make the call on a remedy. So can, can we go back to the, you know, to identifying stranger peculiar? Sure. Because I always liked my definition yeah. and I'm totally fine to have, you know, to be schooled or to have a, you know, a different, different perspective on it but I always use that as, a, as an imperative for homeopaths to become more worldly to be to be worldly because if you've never heard something right. it everything you. seems strange that's exactly if you say at yeah. home and don't go out then you know everything is strange when it's not so it's I mean the point that I suppose I was trying to make is that a strange or peculiar symptom for me is somewhat subjective I don't. I disagree uh, oh, because good. it's it's striking, and and so what Hahnemann says in one fifty three that actually really crystallizes it for me is he says, and this kind of goes back to you with the student who didn't ask about the storm, and you're saying, well, I know the rubrics, therefore, right? Hahnemann's saying you need to know the materia medica. So if you know what is striking in the remedies, you are looking for how that stands out in the case. Uh -huh. 
And that's what you that's what you're looking for. You see That's really interesting. The other the other day I was reading over your shoulder. I don't know if you know that. Um, you what were was re- I reading? Dimitri Addis. Ah, yeah. And it was interesting because in his because you must have been preparing for a chronic disease. I was teaching interest, intro to chronic diseases. Yeah. And he and I saw a little note and it said, and I I believe it said something along the lines of strange and rare and peculiar. Is it is a translation and it's not necessarily the correct translation mm-hmm. because he said it's a singular symptom. It was really yeah. interesting. Did yeah, you, but that's that's true. Would you, you say that a singular symptom is a strange or a peculiar symptom, or is that just now semantics? It, now it's semantics, but okay. but but it's it's elevated and it and it's elevated, oh, it's totally elevated. by context, yeah. right? And it's elevated also by the materia medica. So I mean, for me, that that MS case always stands out. I always use that as a as a, a teaching example because, well for a lot of reasons but one is it was striking mm. so it ha- it was amplified in her case mm. yeah it was a very strong presentation it wasn't just an odd thing you know a lot of times we'll use as an example the um red triangle on the tip of the tongue and wrist talks okay well it's strange whatever but how strong is it is somebody going to say you know all i could think about you know look at me what's the first thing you see is this red triangle on the tip of my tongue i mean it's but when somebody says my you know my clothes turn yellow you know i just all my clothes are turning yellow from my perspiration mm. that is it's so it's striking and i think i like Hahnemann uses the term striking which i find to be really important mm. now we're you know, I, I feel like we should start winding down and cleaning up some loose ends. Can I? What do you mean? Get, <laughs> I'm getting a groove up. Here. Okay. So we had... Um, so much to talk about. Well, that's why we're going to do them in segments. We're not going to do... This is oh, going to be like one of those Scandinavian I movies where people stack pizza. wood for 11 hours. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, watch me knit all day. So um, you mentioned something that I think is super important to point out because, you know, there are going to be people who are listening um, and consuming this content who maybe have had different exposures into homeopathy. Yeah, totally. And so, and one of the things that I think is a really fair assessment of some of the ways that homeopathy is practiced is that people often lose sight of the chief complaint. Mm -hmm. And that is, right? And so you've got to understand what's happening in the body. You know, if someone has, you know... Crohn's disease, you 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 absolutely must be investigating their digestive system, and it has to be a priority, right? That that the remedies only remedies for which there is an affinity for that organ system should be considered. You know that's a part of it, and so you know there is a there had there had been a trend in homeopathy years back, and we'll talk about this. This is a you know a byproduct of the Kentian interpretations of homeopathy, where homeopathy got so mentalized and became this treat the whole person, you know, you're finding the you know their soulmate in nature and it and it often bypassed that they had a very real legitimate mm. pathological uh, malfunction that needs to be addressed. So I think it's important to to note that good homeopathy always must take into account that chief complaint and the pathological so the, disturbance. The way, the way I think about that is that that chief complaint, and it, look, I'd say 70% of the time it's probably physical and maybe 30% of the time it's, you know, it's, you know, mental or emotional origin. And if, but that's in that point. 30% of the time, if you look at the aphorisms where Hahnemann says, right, right, yeah, right. yeah, oh, you think it's a one-sided disease, people, please, that yeah. means you didn't do your job. But the, 
point I was going to make is that it's a portal. You know, yeah. that's the way in. Totally. And, it, and, and the first thing you do is you write it down and then you start to modify it. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about that. And then you look to see how the rest of the case interacts with it. Mm-hmm. You know, because what you're looking for is a thematic understanding of multiple aspects of human suffering. Mm. And if you do your job, there will be a, you will have the capacity to synthesize that understanding and to see the case. Like you know you're you know that you've got something good when all the pieces fit together in a natural and harmonious synthesized way, you know? Um, and then what floats to the top with that are the characteristic or striking symptoms that have to be considered, you know, or that become the sort of vetting um, uh, factors for the choice of the remedy. Yeah, totally. Have have you seen those examples of, you know, cases, if you scroll through a journal or look at, you know, um, maybe a case study that you've read about, a recent one, and there are these repertorizations with 25 25 rubrics in them? I can't. I mean... It, well, but you know what though it, it, but, uh, and the reason I'm saying that is because I've because those are not characteristic symptoms no those are those are all of the symptoms yeah so uh, but and, don't you think though if it's published in a journal I would consider that a secondary repertorization it's like what we do in clinic uh, yeah but sometimes I don't think it is but the, the thing mm. you said before which is so cool I was trying to be nice oh okay <laughs> Kindness always first. All right. Um, but I love what you said before, and it's and it's a way that um, that I've you know learned to to understand our our, our specific um, diagnostic framework mm-hmm. in the work that we do, and it's to look for the constellation of yep. of symptoms in the same way that you know I don't know I mean I think it's a really good word because if you look up on the night sky or if you've got the app. And you see Scorpio, there's a truckload of stars there. You can only see a couple of them. And at the end of the day, it is those bright stars, those characteristic symptoms in the client's case that will get you to the place you need to go. Totally. Yeah. Totally. You know, in another podcast, I would love for us to talk about some... We're going to be doing this every day for the next year. (laughs) Some... um, case analysis strategies, you know, some of the things that I've been working on in my book, Mm. you know, the idea of micro repertorizations and secondary repertorizations, ways to, ways to dig into the repertory and to use it, you know, to really use it as a, a, as a tool of reference that delivers things you might not have thought about. Well, that's the point because your repertorization is generally three characteristic symptoms. Exactly. And not the 20 that the client talked about. As soon as you do that. You get sulfur. Sulfur and luxformica. Yeah, calc carb. Yeah. Maybe, maybe lachesis. Sepia. Mercury. Blah, blah, blah. And then you miss all the other, you know, 6,000 <laughs> possibilities. So if we're to tie this up in a neat bow, because oh. we, you know, we entered into this talking about sort of this, this challenge that homeopaths face mm. in doing our job in a reductionistic world. And... Sometimes I think we make it more difficult on ourselves or no, actually, I think, I think it's very difficult for us, especially if we ourselves are, you know, are struggling. So if somebody has all these symptoms and, you know, and then they get a diagnosis of Lyme with a little splash of, you know, of uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever on the side and then a little mold and, you know, and they have the MTFHRHFR, I always get it wrong. Oh, that one. Right. And all yeah. those things, it, not helpful at all. No. 
in no, homeopathy. No, no, no. And right, and so, and I guess something for us to think about um, is when we are really operating according to Hahnemann's principles, which, funny enough, really work even in the face of the complexity of 21st century complicated diseases. What we are asked to do is to emphasize the idea of that totality, looking for the characteristic symptoms. And I guess the thing I'd love for people to just kind of wrestle with in their own head is, and it, you know, how do you deal with this in your own practice? Because once you start to use ancillary interventions, be they allopathic, I wouldn't say allopathic because we don't have as much trouble dealing with allopathic medicine and homeopathy cases. It just doesn't it's not as much of an issue as it is when there are multiple homeopathic interventions, or sometimes if you've got this idea of like a bio-identical intervention, do those things take away the characteristic symptoms that, that are really what leads us to that finding the remedy that, that guide us? Mm. I love it. Stranger and peculiar. Uh-huh. That's us. Wow. Well, it is us. We'll see you again, everyone. Thanks for listening. We hope you learned something. Take care.